So we are been talking about spiritual disciplines for the past few weeks. And I don't know if you found it the same way I have, but I've tried each week to say, all right, I'm gonna make a decision to implement this into my life. That's something I haven't done up to this point, but I'm gonna add this into what I've already been doing. And man, I don't know how many of you have tried to do that each week, but wow, it gets really difficult because you get so distracted. Uh, man, there's so many things to think about other than those things that are very important. And it reminds me that we spend most of our lives dealing with things that are urgent but not important. And we spend very little time on things that are important but not urgent. Do you know the difference in those two, right? So the things that are urgent are like right in front of us. I have to do this right now. Oh, look at the grass is out there. It's really too high. I've got to go out and mow it right now. Is it really that important that the grass gets mowed? Some of you would say yes because you're obsessive compulsive. But... The, the majority of it is that grass could grow for another week, it could be fine. But what happens, there's a lot of things that are important, like paying bills, that aren't urgent, because you know, well, I've got some time to do this, or I can go online and do this, because we make, keep making excuses. And a lot of times the things that are important, but not urgent, never get done. And the things that are urgent, but not important, we spend all of our times doing those things and our wheels just end up spinning. And so spiritual disciplines are one of those things that end up being in that category of very important, but not urgent. You don't have to wake up in the morning and have a quiet time. There's nothing urgent about it unless you see it for the value that it produces in your life. And so we have to be disciplined. That's what we're talking about, being disciplined about those things. Just to recap where we've been, we started off with the idea of Bible reading, Bible study, getting up, having a quiet time, spending time reading God's word, spending time studying God's word. Second week, we went into the idea of fasting and secrecy, how nobody wants to talk about fasting. But we talked about a biblical perspective of fasting, understanding what it's all about and coming face to face with the fact that we are mortal beings that we're going to die one day. And so fasting, part of, uh, of the essence of fasting is coming to grips with the idea that we don't have forever, that we're not going to live forever. And we have to understand that we are mortal. So we spend some time starving ourselves from the things that actually keeps us alive. Why? Because what we are reminding ourselves in that process is that if we're not careful, we will spend all of our living days focused on things that are temporal and we will ignore the things that are eternal. And so what we do is we intentionally deny ourselves of the things that keep us going just in the temporal to feast on the things that are eternal. And that's a different perspective of fasting I think that some people have. And today we wanna to talk about community and accountability. Again, we're doing this little series in between. We finished the book of Romans. We're gonna to go to the book of Ruth next. But here we wanna spend some time with the application of all that we learn in those book studies because we gain a lot of good wisdom from it, but how do we apply it? These are the things that if you implement them into your life, you get better traction in what you're learning even in those book studies. And community is a big part of that. Obviously, we are here. We're a part of a community. But Community is more than just showing up. It's more than just being a member of something. We're talking about aspects of accountability. And we're talking about accountability even beyond what maybe we are used to understanding. Because how many of you have been a part of an accountability group where you show up and you kind of got assigned into that group and there's this little list that you go through and you ask each other questions. Did you read your Bible this week? Have you had any bad thoughts towards other people? Have you been angry? And then have you lied to me in this whole thing? You know, you go through that whole little little spill. Uh, but that's really not the essence of accountability that I want to hit on. So we want to come from a biblical point of view. And I want to start with this idea of discipline as well. Go back to what we understand about discipline. And I want to bring something else into it. We think of church discipline. Uh, when we talk about church discipline, we're talking about when scripture says that God takes sin seriously. And so, so do we. And so there's this idea of church discipline where we are always holding high this bar of God's standard for us, knowing that none of us will ever achieve it. But church discipline is this perspective that if someone is just in rebellion and they won't repent of their sins and they just keep forging forward into that, then there comes a time where we have to confront that. And after we have confronted it in a biblical manner, then we have to say, you know what? We're not gonna let you be a part of our fellowship anymore because you're not taking seriously 
this process of sanctification that the scripture calls us to. And so there's this long process of where you're going to the person and they won't have anything to do with you. And they say, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to do my own thing, but you're not. And so there comes this time where you have to part ways because they no longer reflect the sentiment of what Christian community is all about. Now, that is the bad part of discipline. You hope you never, ever get to that part. Spiritual discipline is the same thing. It's just on the front end. You see the difference? So church discipline is on the back end when someone refuses to accept these things. But spiritual disciplines are on the front end of people who say, man, I believe these things. But we realize also that if we're not careful, we will slip into that sin because we have not put the proper guards around us to keep us from going in that direction. So both of them serve the same purpose, which is to move us towards being more like Christ. And that's the goal, hopefully the goal of any Christian. And so spiritual disciplines is almost like this grind that we uh, want to put ourselves into because we want to be more like Christ. We want to do whatever it takes. Like Paul talks about beating his body into submission like an athlete would, saying, you know what? I'm not going to come in last place. I want to be as close to front. All the runners run, but only one wins the race. I want to be that guy that wins the race. Now, it's not all about winning and losing. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the dedication to that grind. Now, there's been a very interesting book that came out last year. I would challenge you, it's not a Christian book, but it has some really great Christian principles in it if you can apply them. It's a book called Grit. And because of the school that I'm in and the degree that I'm working on, we have to read a lot of leadership books. And this is one that falls into that category. And it's a lady by the name of Angela Duckworth. And she wrote this book on grit because she was really looking at, um, from specifically from a military point of view, she talked about these cadets who were coming into West Point. And if you don't know a lot about West Point, which I didn't before reading this book, and I'm probably to West Point. And so she made this comparison of <clears throat> when you look at West Point, and how hard it is to get into. And you compare that to places like Harvard, um, Yale, which we think of these big Ivy League schools that only the smart get into. She makes this comparison of saying, you know what? West Point's harder than they are because they're doing anything. What I'm really talking about is the perspective, the passion that should be inside of us to say, you know what? If God has offered this to me and he's given me the Holy Spirit inside of me, then why would I not give everything I have to see what he can do through me? And that ultimately is what spiritual disciplines is all about. Now, we all also talk about each week that we have to be careful of our depravity. We have to understand that we do come from a perspective of sin and we still have indwelling sin, even if we are followers of Christ. So we need spiritual disciplines because we are fallen people. We were created for community. We were created for community, but what happens is sin comes into the picture and it robs us of that kind of relationship that we were actually created for. And our sin leads us into this kind of individualism. And that individualism leads us into disowning our brothers and our sisters as Cain did, we saw early on in Genesis chapter four, verse nine. And so we always have to remember what Christ is calling us to and the context that we are called to it in. And that is the context of the gospel. So as we study this, we have to understand that the gospel calls us to bear one another's burdens. Just as Christ bore our burdens. Okay? So in other words, over and over again, the gospel calls us to mimic what we saw in the life of Christ. Every aspect of this, when it calls us to prayer, it's asking us to be like Christ. When it calls us to be committed to God's word, it's, it's asking us to be like Christ. And so when it comes to this idea of accountability and bearing one another's burdens, again, it's calling us to be like Christ because he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, because of what he's done, we have already been accepted as children of God. We've been bought with a price and we have been adopted into the family of God, not because of what we've done or what we're going to do, but because of what Christ has already secured for us. So we can confess our sins to God. We can literally go into the presence of God and speak with him and confess our sins to him. But we also can confess our sins to each other, holding each other accountable to that ultimate goal. And see, our society fails on accountability on so many different levels, but I want to specifically look at two of them. 
First of all, our culture is strongly individualistic, especially in our American culture. We are very much into what we would call fence building, not only uh, physically, but we're also into it relationally. We love to build fences around ourselves to protect ourselves from other people. Uh, We love to do that as well in our culture, right? You go back 30, 40 years, and there was no such thing as privacy fence. There were the little chain link fence that you could see right through. Why? Because you wanted to know what your neighbors were doing. You knew those people, right? You had the front porch, not the back porch. And the front porch was on the front because you wanted to see the neighbors walking up and down the street. And you wanted to see what they were doing across the street. Everybody knew what everybody else was doing. I always like to hear Sinbad talk about growing up in the uh, 70s. And he talks about how you get in trouble, the whole neighborhood whip you on the way home. People come out, I heard what you did. And they would spank you. You You could never get away with that anymore, right? Um, because we have become so individualistic as a society. We've become so, so much like hermits and that we are in these neighborhoods with people that literally we all live on a quarter acre lot and yet we don't know our neighbors. We don't know much about them at all because our society over and over again, multiplying in this, have become very isolated and individualistic. And so our culture lacks permanent standards. What we've seen unfold in our culture is this degradation of any kind of moral standard in the sense that we no longer agree on what is right and what is wrong. Whereas you go back 50, 60, especially 100 years, and you see that there are these definitive moral perspectives of this is right and this is wrong. Now what happens in our culture is what's right and wrong is really in the view of each person. And what happens is when there are no clear standards, there are also no clear sinners. Therefore, if there are no clear sinners, there's no need for accountability. So everyone's living their own life, doing their own thing. Maybe there's some things that people are ashamed of, which I think we would all say that we've all been there. We've done things that we are ashamed of. But yet the culture says you shouldn't be ashamed of it. You you, you shouldn't deny it. You shouldn't be worried about it. Why? Because for you, that's what you need. that's, That's fine for you. So over and over again, we have to be aware of not only the fact that we're sinners, but that we live in a culture that's inundated with sin as well. You know, again, you go back not too far in time and the most quoted scripture was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's the most quoted scripture today? Judge not, lest ye be judged. That's it. And, and, and it, I think that's amazing because it really tells us the culture that we live in. Hey, don't judge me. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And when we think about what that means for us as a church, when we think about what that means for us in our society, we really have to critically begin to understand what all of that means. Ironically, the people who quote that verse the most are the, I don't mean this judgmentally, but they're the ones that embody it the most, right? I'm not judging. But you, if you actually think about the perspective of judge not, least ye be judged, and you think about our culture where they say, hey, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. You're not in charge of truth. What is that person doing? They've made themselves in charge of truth. And they're the ones that are, the ones that are setting the standards for everyone else. See, the thing is, the pendulum is always swinging, Right? It goes from this idea of this very legalistic, we're gonna be really good people for the fact that we wanna be really good. We're doing all the good things for all the wrong reasons. And what happens is eventually society rebels against that, but we never find a balance. What happens is it swings way back in the other direction. But what you find is the most conservative people in our culture and the most liberal people in our culture have the same sin problem. And that is, they want everyone to do what they think is the truth. Do you see that? And so you can swing way back over to this other side and say, you know what? You shouldn't be judging people on any standard that's in scripture and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't hold people to that standard. Well, what are you doing but creating your own set of scriptures and you're doing the very thing that you're actually criticizing in someone else? I mean, how how much have we seen now that if you are a Christian, now you're a second-rate citizen. Now you're the one that's attacked. Now you're the one that is 
marginalized. Why? Because the pendulum is always swinging, right? And that's the thing we have to be careful of. Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we need the community of Christ? Why has Christ created the church? And why has he called us to this aspect of accountability? Well, I think we need to start with what accountability is not, okay? If we're not careful, we can slip into this legalism and we can treat accountability as this kind of confession where you go in and talk to somebody and just kind of get some things off your chest, right? But here's the thing. Accountability is not where you go to just get things off your mind. Accountability is more than confession. Accountability, the way the Bible describes it for us, is literally this way of living life together. Accountability also should not be focused on certain sins. And that's the reason I don't like the idea of coming in and having this list of questions. Why? Because there's no way that on that one list, you can have everything that anyone in that group could possibly be dealing with. Because we're all different. And the things that I struggle with, you don't struggle with. And the things that you struggle with, I probably don't struggle with. We're all very different. We're wired differently. And our depravity is very different as well. Because a lot of that has to do with how we were brought up, the things that we experienced, both the negative and the positive, the kind of relationships we've had in the past. And there's no way one little sheet of paper with several questions on it can cover all of that. And so it's more of being like diligent to go through a list of sins. It's more about being transparent and knowing the person to the point that you're sharing life together. If you're sharing life together with someone, you don't need a list of questions. You already know what they're struggling with. You know what's going on with them. I mean, I I hope you have a friend like that. I have a couple and I feel very blessed to have what I would say is two. And these two people, I'm telling you, they can just come to me. I don't have to say anything. They'll just come up and go, what's going on with you? What do you mean what's going on with you? I mean, I think I can tell something's going on with you. And they know it. I try and hide it. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Okay, I am. I'm I'm really struggling with some things right now. I just, you know, my mind is all over the place. It's amazing how they can read you, right? There was no list of questions to go through. They knew me and I know them. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about accountability. It's not this manufactured accountability. It is literally this life on life kind of living. And so if we're not careful, this program of accountability that we create can become very judgmental. It can focus on certain sins that certain people that struggle with those sins always feel condemned. And the people who don't struggle with those certain sins are sitting there going, look how spiritual I am. I don't struggle with any of those things. And so very easily we can slide into caring more about behavior modification than truly caring about someone's soul. So when we understand the gospel and how the gospel contextualizes how we live day in and day out, especially when it comes to this aspect of spiritual disciplines, the gospel calls us to be more than just accountability partners. The gospel calls us to be in community with other believers. If we're in community and we truly know what's going on in each other's lives, then all of a sudden people are going to confess their sins to one another and it's not going to become this big surprise whenever they begin to share the things that they're struggling with or the things that they've done because they've already been involved with each other's lives, right? Ecclesiastes 4, 9, not a passage you would think that you would go to when you talk about accountability, but I want you to just listen to the wisdom of this preacher. By the way, the word Ecclesiastes means preacher, all right? This preacher says this, two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So in verse nine there, look at verse nine. It talks about the benefit that we have when we work together, right? If we're individuals and we're going out there trying to advance the kingdom of God on our own, I'm telling you, we're not gonna get as far as if we're doing these things together. Why? Because together is accountability. You know, you're going out there and you're sharing the gospel and you start getting frustrated because no one is accepting it. No one's listening to you. You need to have someone going, how, how exactly are you sharing this gospel with them? 
And then you start telling them and you're like, mm, I can pretty much tell why people are not accepting that. Why? Well, because you're a little bit overbearing. You're a little bit too strong in this end. And so what happens is in community, we begin to relate to each other. We benefit from each other's perspective. I am really easygoing and I'm, I'm a lover of people, not a lover of structure, right? And I need someone every once in a while to come along and go, okay, listen, there needs to be some structure here. I'm like, all right, I, I understand that. And I need that. We all need each other because we come together and we challenge each other and we benefit each other. So if we're working together in the kingdom of God, there's going to be a greater benefit than if we're working alone. Secondly, he talks about this idea of us taking care of each other. You know, if someone has this issue, uh, they fall, they break their leg or something like that. And he says that it's good to have somebody there to splint your broken bones or to help you out of a ditch if you've fallen into to get you to get the medical help that you need. And so the way we would apply that and the idea of accountability is when you're struggling spiritually. Man, isn't it good to have somebody who's gonna walk alongside you and say, man, I know this is a struggle, but listen, it's not gonna last forever. Just keep walking. I'm not gonna leave you. I'm gonna be here. We're gonna get through this. Man, isn't life so much better when you have someone who knows the dirtiest stuff that you have in your soul and yet they refuse to leave your side? and they keep encouraging you to take another step forward. That's the beauty of accountability. That's what the scripture wants us to experience and want us to have. The next thing he talks about there is, is this idea of life on life and providing community. It talks about if one lies down alone, now he's going to get cold, right? But if two lie down together, they can stay warm. Now, this is not the idea of lying in a bed. This is the idea of lying traveling on a journey because in that day and time in Palestine, the, the place where this author would have been referring to, uh, they didn't have holiday inns. Okay? And so whenever you were traveling and you had to stop at night, you had to just sleep on the side of the road. You had to find a cave to sleep in. And even in the summertime, a, a Palestinian night can be very, very cool, let alone the wintertime. And so there was a necessity that they traveled in numbers so that when they did sleep, they could huddle all together and they would benefit from the warmth of each other. Now, obviously, when we begin to apply that to our own life, we can say there's this emotional warmth that we get from solid friendships. You know, there's, this, there's just this feeling that you get knowing that I can put down all the pretenses and just be myself in front of someone. That doesn't mean that, <clears throat> that I'm looking for someone to accept my sin. I'm looking for someone to love me despite my sin. Do you see the difference in those two? And it's an important distinction that we need to make. We're not looking for the kind of friendship that says, oh, you know what? God knows you struggle with that. Don't, worry, don't let that bother you. Don't let, don't let that disturb you because, you know, you're going to be fine. No, that's destructive. That's not a good friend. A good friend who will look at something that is destructive in your life and say, don't worry about it. That's not a friend. A friend is someone who says, man, I, I know it's a struggle, but don't quit fighting. Don't give up. This is gonna be better for you in this direction. You know it. I know right now you're weak. I know right now your thoughts are disoriented, but I'm telling you, remember when we were back there, remember you said you agreed with this. Now right here, you're going through a difficult time. Don't give up. Don't forget what you knew was true and right back here. We've gotta keep walking. That's a good friend. He didn't leave you because you're a sinner, but he also didn't leave you in the condition of your sin. So that's a benefit that we get. And then the last one there talks about this idea that there's safety in numbers. And there is safety in numbers, isn't there? And you think about the fact that there over and over again in scripture, it talks about this life of following after Christ as being this war that we're in. And I love the imagery that Paul gives to us in Ephesians chapter six, when he talks about the armor of God. And I'm sure those of you who have been in any kind of Bible study and you've studied it, the, the one area that Paul never covers is the back, Right? So there's a helmet of salvation, there's a blessed plate of righteousness, there's a shield, there's a sword, there's something covering your feet. There's nothing that covers your back. Why? Because that's the community. We have each other's back. Yeah, we need something in the front because we need to see what's coming at us. But you know what? I got a brother or a sister or a whole bunch of them that are watching my back because we are in this together and we are looking out for each other. And that's what the ancient rope makers understood. You could take two pieces of twine, right? You could take two pieces of string and you can wind them up all you want. And it's a little stronger than one maybe, but not much stronger. But what happens with three? What can you do with three that you can't do with two? 
You can braid it. Now, I want to show you something that's very interesting because look how this, this passage ends in verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, <clears throat> two will withstand him. And then all of a sudden, what does that last statement say? A threefold cord or a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Now, the whole theme throughout this passage from 9 all the way through 12 has been one thing, which is what? Two are better than one. Two are better than one. Two are better than one. But how does it end? A threefold strand cannot be broken. Okay, so over and over again, it talks about two are better than one, two are better than one, two are better than one, that it ends with this idea of three. Now look at this rope that I have on the screen. Now you can see there at the bottom, how many strands are we dealing with? How many are there? Three. But here's what's interesting. When you look at the rope itself, <clears throat> do you actually see three? If I were to show you a braided rope, or you could look at a girl's braid in her hair, right? When you see a braided hair or a braided rope, it looks like, if you literally look at it and you, and you just kind of visually study it, it looks like there's only two pieces that keep going back and forth. But what do you know about a braid? It takes, you have to have three. And so I think what the preacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes 4 is all of our relationships, we have to understand, have great benefit. But there's a third element that you have to have for that relationship to be at its strongest. And that third element is hidden. And that's the reason he uses the illustration of a braided rope. Because that's something they would have been very familiar with. But there is this third piece that just keeps going in and out. But when you look at a braid, it looks like just two pieces. And much like our relationships, you look at someone who has a really strong relationship with someone else and you think, man, I wish I had that. You look at someone who has a great marriage and you're like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that kind of wife. I wish I had that kind of husband. But what you inevitably miss is most of the time, there is a third that's interwoven into those relationships where the actual strength is coming from. Because two don't provide that kind of strength, three do. Now, what is the third? It's Christ. Because the whole point of accountability is that we must have relationships that have a foundation in Jesus. That we can't have the strongest relationship possible, whether it's accountability or whether it's marriage or whether it's friendship, whether it's camaraderie, none of them can find their full strength outside of a foundation of Christ. And every Christian relationship needs to understand that Christ has to be the foundation of that. Listen to what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter six. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, he's talking to this group, this church in Galatia, and it's a pretty new church when he's writing to them. Now, this is a church that is embroiled in legalism because they have this group there that are called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers have come in and they said, well, the cross of Christ is great, but that's not enough. You have to have the cross and these laws. You have to have the cross and obedience to these stipulations. And so Paul is writing to tell the people of this church how the community of God should really live. And in chapter five of Galatians, he talks about this living by the spirit. He talks about being filled even with the spirit of God. So chapter six is really a continuation from chapter five. Now look at again at the words that he uses there. Do you see the word caught in verse one? This idea of being caught might also be translated detected, overtaken, surprised. Because it's implying someone might suddenly be trapped or discovered in an unseemly situation, maybe even a scandalous act. When this happens, the spirit-filled, Paul says, take action. And, and I love how one commentator puts it. He says this, he says, those who are spiritually minded, that is those whose lives give evidence of the fruit of the spirit that Paul has just talked about in chapter five, they have a special responsibility to take the initiative in seeking restoration and reconciliation with those who have been caught in such an error. Now, a lot of times we think of church discipline as taking sin seriously, but I say this, church discipline is about taking the soul seriously. 
that there really is an eternal nature to all of us, that there is this benefit, there is this value in every single one of us that Christ died for. And when we see that value, we will do whatever it takes to see that person restored. Why? Because it's the image of God and God deserves to have his image glorified, not scandalized. Do you see the difference in that? All of us have struggled with it. Every single one of us have struggled with some aspect of sin. But God has given us, through the person of Jesus Christ, an opportunity to be transparent again. And that's when he talks about those with the fruit of the Spirit, those who are filled with the Spirit of God. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. What's the next one? Patience. I I like the old version where it says what? Long-suffering. Because you know what? When you're dealing with someone who is struggling with sin, basically you're walking a long path of suffering with them. You are, as scripture calls, bearing their burden with them. And it's not just this, we get this idea of church discipline as, you're bad, you're not supposed to do those things, stop it. That's not it. Church discipline is when we realize that the image of God is not getting all the glory that it should. And so we who are filled with the spirit of God say, God deserves nothing less than to have his image glorified. And so we say, what can I do to walk along this person, to see them fully restored so that they can reflect the image of God? What's necessary to restore someone in their sin? What is it that's necessary? Gentleness is required, which has also just been listed as the fruit of the spirit Paul talks about in chapter five. See, accountability is this delicate ministry and it should be carried out with wisdom, with humility, and with gentleness. Sin, still taken seriously, but it's dealt with appropriately. What is it that we might be tempted in? See, more than likely, Paul is warning us to be careful that we don't gloat over those who have been overtaken by sin. That's what the world does. Have you ever noticed as soon as any Christian leader falls, man, the world's ready to jump on that person. Listen to me, it should never be that way in the church. We should expect the world to do that, but it should never be our response. It's not that we would ever in intend to do it sometimes. But again, it goes back to that being aware of our depravity, understanding our own sin, and that pride and conceit are just that powerful that they are these subtle sins in our life that just go, can't believe that guy would have done that. Man, that guy must be messed up. Implying that we're not. The proud and the conceited are too exalted in their own hearts to bend low and to carry other people's burdens. Do you hear that? The proud and the conceited are too exalted in their own hearts to bend low and carry other people's burdens. The easy part in Christianity is pointing out all those people that are bad and dumb and not as smart as you. And if they would just get their life together like you, man, they would be so much better. If they just made better decisions like you always make your decisions, man, their life would be so much better. Hey, you know what? That's really easy to sit back there. It's kind of like the, <laughs> my dad told a story of somebody who their car was broke down the front. They, they broke down at a, um, a red light. And man, he's, he's sitting there, he's trying to get the car and this lady's back there just honking her horn, honk, honk, honk. And so he finally walks back there. He goes, lady, if you know anything about cars, why don't you go up there and fix it? I'll sit here and honk the horn. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of truth to that because it's just so easy to get frustrated with somebody and just sit there and just lay on the horn. What's wrong with you? Get your life together. Quit making those bad decisions over and over and over again. And you know what? It's kind of like some people want to go, you know what? If you know the answer, why don't, why don't you take my life and I'll sit here and just be critical of you until you get it figured out. But that's not what Christianity is about. It's about walking. It's about being long suffering. Paul instructs that we must bear or carry one another's burdens. He doesn't say that we might have to bear them. He says, we will have to bear them. We all have to bear these burdens in life. The intention is that those burdens would never be carried alone. And that's the whole point of accountability. 
It's the whole point of church discipline. The point of church discipline is not to separate someone. It's the hope that that person can be restored. The body of Christ, the church, is to take on this responsibility of bearing one another's burdens. So the ministry of burden bearing, it's not just a suggestion. We have to understand this is a command and it's not something that's only reserved for pastors. It's all Christians. So to be obedient to Christ and to the gospel means that we must help others carry those heavy burdens of their life. This is what it means to love, to be the church, to be the faith community, living in relationships where we are holding each other accountable to the great standards of the word of God. You see, the law of Christ that Paul is likely referring to here in this passage is Jesus' commandment in John 13, 14, where he tells us to love one another. He says, this is what it means to bear each other's burdens, to love one another just as Christ has loved us. Let me show you one other passage. James 5, 16. James says this, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as to its working. So here James is highlighting the importance and the power of prayer. Now in verse 16, he's specifically highlighting the personal aspects of prayer and confession. Matter of fact, James is encouraging transparency here. Notice that he says that we should confess our sins to each other. Now, let me also say that we should confess our sins to each other in a safe environment. All right. I was a youth minister before uh, starting Mars Hill. And I remember very clearly, I learned early on in youth ministry, you never have an open mic night, okay? That, that's a very strong temptation to do at camp because you're like, you know what? We're just feeling the spirit. So many people, God's working. I'm going to open up this mic, let people just come up here and share. Bad idea, always a bad idea, all right? Because you have inevitably, like I had that one girl who came forward and she's like, I want you to forgive me because I talked about how ugly the clothes are that you wear. I'm so sorry about that. And I want you to forgive me because your hair is so dumb looking and you can't help that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. What a bad idea. Uh, because that's not what confession is about. I mean, confession isn't just about throwing out there every bad negative thought you've ever had about somebody because some of that is better left inside and you deal with that internally. So we're talking about literally, this is why it's important to understand confession in connection with accountability. Because here's someone that you're living life on life with and you can say to that person who already knows you, man, why am I so judgmental? Why is it? Let me give you an example. I walk into this place and immediately what I notice is what people are wearing, what their hair looks like. I don't look into their souls. All I'm looking at is the outside. Why am I so superficial? And in a right relationship where someone already knows me, they can come to me and go, listen, hey, here's your problem. And they can start going into it, right? But it's not about confession all out in the open and hurting people's feelings, all right? It's the point of confession. The point of confession is to ask yourself, what's wrong? What am I getting wrong? Why is my perspective off? And it's only in a relationship, a safe relationship, that we can be honest about those things and get honest feedback on how we correct those things. This really goes back to this truth that sin not only separates us from God, but it separates us from each other. What, what do we learn in the garden? We always see, or maybe we focus in on, that sin separates us from God. But what do we also learn in the garden story is that not only did Adam and Eve have to leave the garden and they did become separated from God, if you look very carefully at what God says to them and those curses that are pronounced, they also were separated from each other. Now, remember, again, curses, we, it's not the same way we think of it. It wasn't God going, you have made me so mad, and because you've made me mad, I don't want you in my garden anymore, and because you've made me so mad, I'm going to make your lives miserable. So you're going to have a hard problem growing anything, and you're going to have a lot of pain in having babies. No, the idea of how that story unfolds is this. I told you not to invite sin into this world. But because you've brought sin into this world, I've got to be honest with you and tell you how life is going to be now. 
And so he says to the woman, there's going to be a great increase in this pain in childbearing. Now, it's very interesting to see that because it's not, he didn't say I'm going to make childbearing painful. He says it's going to be greatly increased, which means there was already pain in childbearing. And the physical pain of childbearing is, is good. I mean, there may be a lot of ladies that don't agree with me. But all I remember is when I held Colin in my arms, I forgot all the pain that I went through <laughs> to have that child. And so the point being is this. There is some good in the pain in childbearing because it does tell you when things are happening and what, how you're supposed to cooperate with your body. So my point is that the scripture is talking about a different kind of pain. It's talking about an emotional pain. In other words, because you've brought sin into this world, you're going to birth children in this world and you're not going to be able to protect them from the sin that you've brought into it. And many rabbis say that that was realized when her oldest killed her youngest. And Cain killed Abel. It's sin that comes into our situations. It's sin that comes into our culture that can be so detrimental to our relationships. What, what is the thing that we see? So when Adam and Eve were there, they were naked and what? Unashamed. Now we always think about the physical. That's, that's the way we're wired, right? We think about the physical. But we have to understand that from the perspective of Hebrew writing, they're thinking more spiritual, emotional. What the writer wants us to understand is these people had a relationship and they had no issues with each other, nothing to hide. They knew each other intimately and had nothing they would ever withhold from each other. All of a sudden they get talked out of it. And immediately what do they do? They put on clothes, they hide themselves. And we see them leaving the garden, we see them clothed. Here's what's interesting. Before sin, they're naked and unashamed. After sin, for the first time in humanity, guess what happens? There's an inside and an outside. Before that, it was just who they were. There was nothing to hide. After sin, there's the inside and the outside. There's who I really am. And there's what I want those people to believe that I am. And we've gotten better at the clothes, right? Started with those fig leaves. God's like, I'm gonna have to up your game a little bit here. And he gave them some skins. But man, we've, we've upped the game even since then, right? I mean, we got cal we got everything to look the best that we possibly can. And all the while, we are just rotting away on the inside. And the real cry of our soul is, I wish I could just be honest about what's in here with someone and they would love me despite that. But we don't know that we can trust anybody. And so we keep putting up the front and all the while we're dying on the inside. Think about that in light of what James says. Confess your sins, not to God. We do confess our sins to God because He's the one that we've offended. That's not what James is focused in on here, though. Confess your sins to each other so that you may be what? In other words, quit playing the game. Quit putting up the front. Quit acting like everything is okay. And be honest so that you can find healing for your soul. We all are struggling with this on the inside to the depths of who we are. And see, the gospel, the gospel compels us to not only confess sin, but also to hold others accountable for their actions after they confess sin to us. So again, it's not taking sin lightly. It's saying, man, I know what that's like. I have my own struggles too. Let's enter into a covenant with each other and say, man, we're gonna keep each other accountable to this because God deserves better than us wallowing around in our sin. And he died so that we could have something better than this. Let's go for it. Let's find some grit in our life. Let's find some tenacity. Let's fight this together. I'll help you with yours if you help me with mine. And you know what? Let's be honest with each other and just say, from this point forward, we're going to walk this road together for the glory of God. That's what it's talking about. That's what David and Jonathan experienced. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 18, 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, some people say, well, that just sounds a little bit, mm, I don't know. 
two men knit together at the soul. I don't sound really, man, you don't want to mess with David. Okay, remember David was known for? Saul's killed his tens of thousands. David's killed his tons of thousands, right? I mean, like, this is a guy who was a warrior at heart. He was fierce. He stood up to Goliath. He killed bears. He killed lions. I mean, this is a guy who wasn't scared of anything. And yet, even here in scripture, it says this warrior-like person needed a relationship with another person that he could be honest with. And it says literally they were knit. Their souls were knit together. Now, you can look at that and go, I just don't like the way that sounds. You know why? It's because you have been so inundated with this culture of what it means to be macho than what scripture says about what we really need as men. Women, you have the same struggle. You do. I mean, women can be more emotional people, but you know what? You can also be very much superficial, right? Well, I've seen women, they get together and they fake it just like the men do. We're no different from each other. There's very much differences with men and women, right? But when it comes to this idea of hiding our sin, man, we're both good at it. We are both so good at it. Paul and Timothy, first, uh, Philippians 2.20, Paul says that he has no other friend like Timothy. Listen to what it says in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have, what does it say? No one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul has this relationship with Timothy where he can be honest and Timothy can be, you know why? Because they never gave up on each other. When they went on ministry together, when they were in prison together, when they were sharing the gospel together, they were living life together. They knew each other well. And that's the whole aspect of accountability. Accountability is inviting others into your life in such a way that they know you and your struggles to the point they can walk with you as you seek to press into Christ and to honor him with your life. Accountability is not a weekly time for you to ask me questions and I answer them. That's a, that's a false sense of accountability. True accountability doesn't need to ask a list of questions. They already know because your friend has been invited all the way into your life and they know where you are. They knew, know who you are. They've seen the depths of your soul. I think we all struggle with what in a leadership theory is called imposter syndrome. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? It's that, so it's something that we have. A syndrome is something that you, you deal with. It's this this is something that should not be, but it is, right? And so imposter syndrome is this. We know what an imposter is, right? That's someone who comes in and they pretend to be something that they're not. So imposter syndrome is a real thing that people deal with. And I'll give it to you from my perspective because I deal with it all the time. As a pastor, you're expected to be good at technology, to know Hebrew, to know Greek, to be good at counseling, to know everything about marriage, everything about raising kids, everything about finances, everything about administration, to be a good teacher. I mean, there's just so much expectation. And then people will walk up to you and they'll go, man, it's just amazing how you know, man, you were preaching that and you said this and I immediately made that connection of blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't even think that. I don't know how you got that out of that, but that is pretty awesome. I'm going to write that down. And next time I teach that, I'm going to use that because that's good. <laughs> but the temptation is to, if this person ever realizes that I don't know what I'm doing, that's imposter syndrome. It's living with this anxiety that you're about to be found out for the fraud that you are. And it's very real. And I think it's very real for us Christians who get sucked into the legalistic culture. Man, they find out that I don't have a quiet time hardly at all. Man, what if they find out that I'm, I don't want to know what I'm doing when I'm praying. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be praying. What if they find out that it, it scares me to death to share my faith with someone? I, I don't even know how to do that. I don't want to do that. What if somebody asks me? What if somebody finds out? You know the way you remedy that? Transparency and accountability. Guys, I don't got it together. Man, if it weren't for a Logos Bible program, I wouldn't know any Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I know some things about marriage, but I struggle to make, implement them into my own marriage. I know how you should raise your kids, but I don't do it with mine. You know, the thing, we have to be honest with each other. Yeah, there's these principles that we can talk about, but we're all falling. We're all struggling, which is why we all need this idea of accountability. Prior to World War II, 
in Nazi Germany, there was a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was a pastor. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer started this underground seminary in Pomerania where he shared common life with these 25 students that he had. Of course, they were doing this underground because they didn't want anybody to know about it. They didn't want to be discovered. And so literally these guys were sharing life together in secrecy because if they got found out, they would be in so much trouble in prison and and all kinds of other things would happen to them. And from that experience, he wrote this book called Life Together, where he elaborates on what he went through and what he learned from it. Now in the fifth and final chapter of the book, it's called Communion and Confession. He gives some reasons for the practice of mutual confession. And the biggest one is this, that isolation is, is, is what brings sin into our life. It is when we isolate ourselves that we create this culture of sin. Bonhoeffer says this, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But what happens is when we do what the scripture calls us to and we confess our sins to each other, it destroys that autonomy. It destroys that independence. And so it pulls down that barrier of hypocrisy that we all have when we act in that way. And it allows this free-flowing grace and community that God intended for us to have. And The other main benefit of confession is that it brings healthy humiliation. Bonhoeffer goes on and says this, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It is dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy. He's using big words there that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. Isn't that amazing? So confession helps to promote a poverty of spirit. Oh, that's interesting. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom heaven. I want to end by giving you this illustration of gym memberships. How many of you are a member of a gym somewhere, right? Now there are two kinds of gym members and you'll know what I'm talking about if you've ever been to one. There are gym members who are amenities only. They come in, they go in the locker room, they change, they put stuff in the locker, they go out there, they do their little workout, takes about 15, 20 minutes, right? They go back in there, just feel good about themselves, all they were really working on. They change their clothes back on and they're gone. They're gone until the next day, right? And then there are those gym members that the gym is like a second life for them. They know everybody there. When they walk in, they're like, John, how you doing today? Because that is like, they're they're the ones that walk around and look, you know, judgmental at you because you didn't wipe down that seat. And so they're walking behind you and they're like, because they like, they take ownership of this place. They're the kind of people that want everything to look right. They're the kind of people that try and keep order there. They're there for a long period of time. It becomes their community, right? Have you ever known those people? You know what I'm talking about? It's interesting because church is the same way. There are people that come in here, they're amenities only. They come in, they drop their kids off there, they come in here, they receive what we have to say and they go about their lives. But then there's those members that come in here and they take ownership. And they're like, man, this is my place. And they're like, John, man, how are things going? How are things going with your wife? How about your kids? You told me the other day that your youngest one was really struggling. How's he doing? I've been praying for him. It becomes like their second home, their community, right? And that's what scripture wants us to have. It wants us to have a place where we can be honest, where we're caring for other people, but we know that people are caring about us as well. Accountability is literally church community practiced in the right way. There's only gonna be a couple of friends that you're gonna find that you can be completely honest with. And that's okay. That's really all you need. If you find one, man, that's awesome. You have more than 80% of the people out there. I've told you before, there's this little study that's done that talks about 
our, our level of communication and the level of transparency that goes with it and how many people we actually share that with. And so we have cliche where we're like, how you doing today? Fine, how are you? Doesn't matter how you're feeling, that your dog may have died that morning, doesn't matter, fine, how are you? We don't ever disclose anything. We will have that kind of conversation with anybody, right? Walking through Walmart, how you doing today? Fine, how are you? We go about our business. But then the next one would be like, not cliche, it would be informational. So we share information that we may know. So we're going through there, how are you doing today? Fine, how are you? Good. Hey, do you happen to know which aisle the bread is on? Yes, it's on aisle four. That's informational, okay? Now, the next one would be opinion. Now, it's limited. You know, each one goes down. It's limited the amount of people that you'll actually share that with. So you move down and you're like, okay, cliche, I'll have that conversation with anybody. Information, I'm only gonna have that with somebody who actually asks, right? Because that would be really weird to be in Walmart and somebody says, how are you doing today? Fine, how are you? The bread is on aisle four. <laughs> They're like, that's weird, all right? So, I mean, so you're, you're, you're reducing the amount of people you're gonna have that kind of conversation with. So the amount of people, as the transparency grows, the amount of people that you have that conversation with shrinks. So the next one is opinion. So it's like, how are you today? Fine, how are you? Do you happen to know where the bread is? Yes, it's on aisle four. But I tell you what, I have no idea why they keep it on aisle four because the peanut butter and jelly is on aisle three and everybody knows if you're gonna pick up bread, you're gonna be picking up peanut butter and jelly. Why do they separate those two? That's an opinion. But I'm not gonna share that with somebody that I haven't seen maybe there a couple of times. Like I've already said, hi, how are you? Fine, I've seen them there week after week. We shop at the same time. Now I feel like I can share a little bit more with them. Do you see as transparency grows, the amount of people that we'll share it with shrinks. Then we get into emotional where we share about things that are going on. How are you doing today? Well, you know what? I'm really struggling today. Man, I had a tough time. My, my son, he's in the military and he's been off for a while and just haven't heard from me. Don't know how he's doing really. You know, I don't know if he's being honest with me and I, I'm really struggling with that. And then the last one is full transparency. Do you know the number of people that statistics tell us that we share full transparency with? One to two that we will be completely honest with. You know what's another amazing thing about that statistic? 97% of the time, it's not your spouse. It's always gonna be someone else. Which is, is that good? No. But you know what it does highlight? Why it's so important that we have a Christian community. Because if we're gonna live in a place where sin has so inundated our marriage relationships that we don't feel like we can be completely honest with them, man, you gotta find somebody that you're gonna be honest with. Because here's the thing, this ain't gonna get better unless we're practicing some kind of transparency somewhere where people are honest with us. I wanna challenge you, incorporate discipline of accountability and community into your life as you follow after Christ. It's one of the greatest ways that we can glorify him and be in awe of his great grace and mercy that has been extended to us. And we celebrate it every single time that we meet and talk and share how great God has been. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for calling us into a relationship, not only with you, but with each other. And Lord, I'm thinking, we always think, man, what it'd be like to, to walk with Abraham or Moses. We always think idealistically about those people that we know of from scripture. But the truth is the Abrahams and Moses of our day and time are right here. And we are walking with them because there's nothing great about Abraham and Moses. It's the fact that they were serving a great God. And Lord, in this community, we have people who love you. Lord, please allow us to find the place to connect with you, to know you but also to be known and to be loved. Lord, what we experience with you and what your, your scripture tells us is true about you, Lord, may we experience that with each other. May we find that person that we can trust and receive the benefit that you paid such a high price for. Lord, I pray that you would call us to deeper relationships where we're not playing church or being the church. Help us to understand what it means to bear one another's burdens, to walk away from legalism and judgmentalism, to embrace true mercy and grace, just as you did. God, to help us to see sin the way you see it, but also to embrace the grace that you have extended to us. Lord, and to help us to balance those two things together because it's for your name and for your honor, what you deserve because of who you are. 
We ask that in Jesus' name. Church, would you stand with us? up his countenance upon you and give you peace to shalom of God as you go. Thank you. Thank you.